Let's go ahead and uh, turn in our copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in verses 1 through 5 tonight. And so John 1, verses 1 through 5. And this morning, we're actually going to, or this morning, wow, it's been a long day. I was preaching again four hours away in North Carolina. Ooh, is it still morning? I think it's happening now. It's still the same day. It's dark outside. It's been like two days. It feels like it. Oh, it's funny. It's funny. Laura even tried to correct me earlier. Oh, man, this evening, not this morning, uh, we're actually going to be uh, looking at one of the most well-loved and truly enlightening passages in all of Scripture. Again, John chapter 1. Um, this is actually going to be a two-part series uh, going through, really three-part series going through John 1, 1 through 18. We're going to be in verses 1 through 5 tonight. We'll be in uh, 6 through um, uh, 13 next week, and we'll be in the final uh, five verses, 14 through 18, uh, the week right before Christmas. So be a really good time going through that together as we um, are, of course, celebrating Advent, you know, the coming of Christ in the flesh. And so um, what I love about this passage, though, specifically, is that this passage right before us, even these few short verses, are just brimming with gospel truths all about the very person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus specifically as the eternal Son of God who took on flesh for our sake. Now, I think the message of Christ's incarnation, of course, is very fitting at this time of the year. I mean, we're beginning this Christmas season, you know, Advent, even as of this Sunday, December 3rd. Um, but John 1 is of further reaching importance than just Christmas. See, it's so important for our own society because it actually is influential in how we look at the things going on around us, especially all of the doom and gloom, to be quite honest with you. Things that we read about on the news or on social media, that kind of thing. Oftentimes the Gospel of John has been called the Gospel of Belief, but I'm convinced actually that the Gospel of John, especially here in chapter 1, addresses not so much our belief, but rather our lack of belief. Really even our disbelief in many ways. See, you and I are immersed, as we all are, I'm sure, aware, we're immersed in a culture that is just plagued by this point in a post-COVID world, plagued by jadedness, cynicism, augmented tribalism, and even a festering distrust of those in authority, people in government, politicians, etc. I don't think they've ever had record low numbers, to be quite honest with you. But for instance, even in recent years, we've all witnessed, every single one of us here in this room, world-altering, catastrophic events. Events such as international wars. You think of Ukraine and Russia right now, or Israel and the Palestinians. We all have been affected by economic panic, even rampant sexual immorality, critical race theory, never mind a widespread virus, even just a few short years ago, that personally affected all of our lives and was used to host <laughs> Uh, exploitative reactions to this exact same virus. And these reactions by people in our government and people over us in authority impacted each one of our own livelihoods, including myself. Caused people jobs, their livelihoods, their well-being. And so tension was in the air, as we know, a few years ago, and it still is in the air, if we're being quite honest. And we feel the same kind of tension in our own souls 
Furthermore, the American church herself has been under much fire by not only those outside of the church, but now even by those who are inside what is known as the visible church. Many women throughout the evangelical church who once claimed the name Christian for themselves have begun in many cases, one by one, over and over again even, they've turned up these false gospels. False gospels that are governed by the false god of self. And these Christians, or quote-unquote Christians, include people that a lot of us grew up loving and respecting. Uh, people like well-known artists and authors and public speakers in the Christian marketplace of ideas and music and art. And sadly, these people, some of whom are well-loved by us, have now deconstructed their faith and just have simply denied the inerrancy and the authority and truly the sufficiency of, of Scripture itself. And so biblical repentance from sin seems not to have been part of their Christian experience. They've walked away from Jesus, the true Jesus, and have tried to even fashion Jesus after their own likings. And I'm sure I'm not alone in recognizing that even these people that I once had love for, and I'm sure many of you once had love for, have become captivated by the alluring self-indulgence of spiritual darkness rather than the unfailing light of life. The light of life, whose name is Jesus. But though this seems to be a strange phenomenon, this deconstructionism and walking away from the faith that the present-day church is now experiencing, this is hardly a new event in the course of human history. It's even as early as the first century in which John, the gospel writer, was writing the early believers here, there were those who had deconstructed, so to speak, the gospel of grace, even way back when. And they sought to lead others astray in matters of doctrine and practice. Such was, again, the cultural context into which John the Apostle was inspired by the Spirit to write the very words right in front of us of John 1, 1 through 5. And so our passage then is in many ways specifically designed to address the suppression of God's truth in our own cultural and societal unrighteousness. So how then does John address unbelief and, and build up belief once more? Well, I'm convinced that he did this by imparting the saving faith in the name of Jesus and Jesus alone, specifically beginning here in our passage. See, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this unchanging message of the gospel is forever true and good and beautiful to each one of us who have ears to hear. And so, friends, I invite you now to hear the very word of God, starting here in John chapter 1, verse 1. The gospel begins with this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the very reading of God's holy word given to us in love. His word that is forever faithful and true. Uh, let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, as we now approach the, the preaching of your holy word, we are so grateful for this time to be able to open it in a safe place without fear of punishment or fear of, of 
warfare and things around us. We thank you, Father, for the freedoms that we still yet enjoy. But Lord, our hearts long for this message to go forth. And Jesus, we know that unless it breaks forth through our own hearts even, and captivates us by your grace, we will never truly desire or even be ready to share the gospel of grace. And so Jesus, as we hear the preaching of your word from John 1, we ask, O Lord, that you would give us humble and broken and contrite hearts before you, that our eyes would be so open to see the magnificence of Christ, our living Savior, that our hearts would be tuned all the more melodiously to hear the gospel and to respond in faith. And so Jesus, we ask that your Holy Spirit would impress the truth exactly where it needs to be in our own hearts and our minds this evening. We pray that we would become a people who adore you more and more and more every single day. We ask, O Lord, that you use this time to lead us as the great preacher that you are, King Jesus, our true prophet, our true priest, and our true king. And so we pray that you would speak to us through your word. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. For instance, I shared a moment ago, we definitely live in what we call deconstruction, uh, an age of deconstructionism, really, in many ways. And we live in an age in which each one of God's primary institutions in this world, that being the family, even government, and even the church, have all been continuously undermined in various ways. They've all been attacked, even in our own lifetimes, especially over the last few years. That's a very depressing thing to think about admittedly, but that's the very situation into which we must address the truth and bring forward the truth. When we think of these three institutions, the family, the church, government, we recognize that each one has been, again, attacked. And the family unit, for instance, has been redefined in recent years, as we all know, the last decade especially in America, through unjust rulings, claiming that uh, a man and woman no longer necessitate or compose what is biblical marriage, true marriage. Our society has tried to redefine such things as marriage and the family unit and even what gender looks like. The civil authorities have proven in recent years not to have the best interests of God's people in mind. It's gone against the church. Uh, the church herself even has suffered a general attitude toward her, ranging from perceived obsolescence, like we all experienced during COVID, Oh, you guys don't need to meet. You can go for a year or two years without meeting. That's okay. We don't need the church. But we suffered that. Everything from obsolescence all the way to even things like false accusations against the church and vitriolic hatred of even her own existence. I mean, just a year ago, if we recall, we saw in the news the so-called Respect for Marriage Act pass in both the Senate and the House, which in effect continue to undermine biblical marriage. And it now places the church directly in the line of fire for anyone who dare go against this new redefined definition of marriage. Furthermore, we all know that personal pronouns have been um, pushed amongst a lot of us. You know, maybe not at Liberty where a lot of us work, but elsewhere in the secular workspace, let alone social media and other places. Even as you may fill out forms, medical forms, whatever it might be, you're now required to say if you're a man or a woman and what your personal pronouns are even. These things are being pushed on us. And to put it very carefully, even in recent years, 
indoctrinating story time, so to speak, had gained popularity amongst the nation, where even kids had been indoctrinated through um, just horrific things regarding sexuality even. And all of these events, unilaterally speaking, morally oppose God, the author of sex, the author of gender, the author of these good gifts that he's made, the creator himself of law and order, and even the work of his church in the world. And so we live in a very tough time, admittedly. But again, it's into these very things that the gospel sheds light. And this gospel of John begins to break forth through the darkness, and the darkness itself cannot overcome it, as we just read. Many of us in our world, though, are living almost like righteous Lot did in the heart of Sodom. And this all pains the heart of our God to see his people suffer such abuses and wickedness that are growing and growing and growing in our postmodern American culture. But as those who've been given the holy word of God to inform us and to direct us in our lives and how we ought to live, we are understandably the best of all men and women, to even understand and see the division in our culture and the discord that has been sown and actually biblically and properly address these very things that are causing us pain and hurt and grievance. After all, our eyes have been enlightened by the one who is in fact the way, the truth, and the life himself, namely Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who chose to redeem each one of us from our sin by willfully entering into the same darkness that we dread. Friends, he didn't need to rescue us, of course, from this foolishness, from this darkened world, from this world of sin, but he wanted to. Do you rest in the fact that he wanted to deliver us from this kind of dominion to sin? See, because of God's gracious condescension to us in the birth of Christ, we then are no longer those who are numbered among those who grope around in the darkness after any kind of separate quest to satiate their own desires. We're not those who have to fall into those same addictive behaviors or patterns of thought or thinking or lifestyles such as the world, apart from Christ, does. We're not enslaved to those things. We're children of the light. We're free. But the rest of the world still dwells in such vile and lonely darkness. It's right for us to have pity and mercy upon those who continue to walk about in darkness. And so how do we then, as those who have seen the light by name, Jesus Christ, the light of life, how do we hold fast to the faith in a culture that is just seemingly unraveling before our eyes? A culture when men continuously around us seem to just stoop to the level of beasts like King Nebuchadnezzar did in the book of Daniel. Well, John the Apostle provides us with answers to three simple but very foundational questions in order to address this spiritual darkness around us. We'll only look at the first one of these questions tonight, uh, but we'll actually look at the following two questions over the next week and kind of split this sermon up into two parts but basically, these three questions that John addresses here in John chapter 1 are very simple. It's this. Uh, first of all, who is Jesus? <laughs> as simple as it sounds, who is Jesus? Second, why should we believe in Jesus? And thirdly, how can we take comfort in Jesus? Again, we'll only talk about the first question tonight. Next week, we'll talk about questions two and three. 
and talk about those things from our text. But even though these are such simple questions, who is Jesus? Why should we believe him? How can we take comfort in him? I believe that John, the apostle, has given us answers here so clearly in our text of John chapter 1 in order to help actually reconstruct the deconstructed faith of others and to build our lives upon the basic building blocks of the faith. And so, of course, the first question then is simply this. Who then is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Let's hear again what John says. He answers this for us right here in the first few verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, without a doubt, these same words echo directly the opening of Genesis chapter 1. They completely line up with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? In fact, the Greek of the text from John chapter 1 and even Genesis chapter 1 in the Septuagint version of the Bible, the Greek translation, they actually match in both substance and even sentence structure. They line up, they parallel each other. In the Greek text, for instance, the sentence actually reads in this exact order, in the beginning, the word was. Just like in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created. It matches up exactly. In the beginning, the word was, period. That's John 1, verse 1. And it's no accident then that John equates this word that we read of here in the gospel with the same creator and sustainer of all things in Genesis chapter 1. Jesus, the word, is God. He is the same God who created all things, who holds all things by the very word of his power, because the word is God. And this idea that the word of God is God, the capital W word is God, it's not just this New Testament idea, like a lot of uh, false religions, uh, Muslims or even uh, Mormons would believe in many ways. Rather, this idea of the word of God being God is actually all throughout the entire Old Testament. For instance, the concept of the word of God was actually widely understood by the believers under the Old Covenant as being nothing short of the very divine person of the coming Messiah. If you read other uh, letters and things around the Old Testament times, there's actually proof that they believed that. The rabbis, the teachers, they actually believed, yeah, this word of God is the Messiah. It is the one who is yet to come. He is the word of God. So this Messiah, or the word of the Lord, as it often is uh, put in the Old Testament, is known to proceed directly from God, even in the Old Testament. In fact, the Jewish Targum, which is the Aramaic paraphrase of the Old Testament, is proof, furthermore, of this same understanding. The word of the Lord is Jesus. The Targum actually repeats all throughout the Old Testament the same phrase, the word of the Lord, as a direct reference to the Messiah by name the divine redeemer and the savior of his own people, the Messiah who was to be sent forth by God's own hand. And in several passages where even the Hebrew text simply says things like, well, the Lord said, or the Lord came to so-and-so, in the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, they actually translate it as the word of the Lord, like capital W, the word, the person, 
The word of the Lord, meaning the Messiah, Jesus, came to so-and-so. The word of the Lord, Jesus, said this. And so they believed that the word was divine. Now, I, you know, if we all of a sudden read Aramaic together, including myself, we could see examples of this word of the Lord construct all over various passages in the, passages in the Old Testament. Uh, various places like Psalm 100, verses 1 through 2, uh, Hosea 1, 6 through 7, Genesis 31, verse 22, and Exodus 20, verse 19. And if you like those for later, I'm happy to give those to you. But right there, in each of those cases, it's actually referring to the word of the Lord as the person, the second person of the Trinity, all in the Old Testament. And so in each of these passages, the word of God is not simply the written word of God, like the Bible, right? It's actually referring to the essential word of God, the very person of Jesus Christ before he came to earth, who eternally proceeded from the Father, who even in Old Testament times actually spoke to his people. Think of what we were just even singing earlier, O come, O come, Emmanuel. You know, the one who in ancient times didst give the law, that was Jesus. Jesus is the one who gave the law to his people. That's a very beautiful truth that this isn't just some New Testament invention, that the word of God is Jesus. Rather, it goes all throughout the entire Bible. Furthermore, this proves to us that Jesus was always, in fact, before the very Father's presence, before time even began. He wasn't merely there with God the Father. He was actually active with the Father in all of the works of both creation and salvation from beginning to end. This is Jesus, the eternal word. And so this notion of the word of God is also clearly expressed for us in other places like Proverbs 8 and Proverbs 30 concerning wisdom as being present with God. Wisdom, capital W, just like the word, being by the side of the Father at the very dawning of creation. Friends, this wisdom, capital W, this word, capital W, is none other than Jesus, even in the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? Furthermore, this same capital W word of God, though, is, of course, as we know, used of Jesus Christ throughout the New Testament by several different writers. Not just John, but also men like Peter and Luke and Paul and even the author of the letter to the Hebrews. They all refer to Jesus in their own writings as the capital W Word. In these passages, the person of the Word himself, the Word of God, is displayed as a warrior and as a conqueror, as the kingly majesty who rides forth wherever his gospel is preached and who actively dispels the works of darkness and the darkened understanding of men and women with the glorious light of his grace. He dispels the darkness of sin wherever his word is preached. And so Jesus is active even in the preaching of his word. He's not merely some, you know, word, like a lot of people say, logos, this philosophical idea for a reason or rationality derived from ancient Greek literature like a lot of people teach. They think that we stole the idea of the logos and imported Christ into it. Rather, it's the exact opposite. This logos is Jesus. This word is Jesus. So why does John then begin his gospel account 
concerning the very life of Jesus with this concept of the Word, capital W, Word? Well, the answer is quite simple. See, he's intentionally setting before our eyes Jesus as the pre-existent Son of God in order that by believing in him, ordinary people like you and me might have life in his name. They might believe. For the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is indeed a mighty tower whom every single one of us can run into and find true safety, shalom, wholeness, and peace forevermore. And friends, I imagine that all of us here as believers, we believe these things to be true, of course. But don't we often live as though these things are not true? That Jesus doesn't hold all things together when our life seems to be falling apart. When our bills begin to pile up, when we receive the hard-to-hear diagnosis from the doctor, when the morality of our nation, even as I was grieving earlier in front of you all, begins to decay right before our own eyes, when we feel the weight of even being judged by others harshly or inaccurately, what is the solution that we in our flesh often seek immediately? If you're like me, it's so easy in my flesh, in my sin, to actually try to rely upon my own self, upon my own good works, perceived good works at least, and upon my own ability to navigate hard situations. See, when our sense of peace is disturbed, it, end, it ends up actually exposing the false idols that we are so prone to worship. When our peace is disturbed, and if it's not in Christ, we begin to see our idols for what they are. In our American culture, in a time when we have all been met with so many stressors, especially again over the last few years, COVID and beyond, it's no wonder that the fake God of capital S self has begun to surface all the more. It's no wonder that we end up seeing lots of articles about self-helpism and ways to become a better version of your own self and things of that nature. For instance, the practice of self-guided meditation has begun to creep into not just the lives of so many people in society, but even into the lives of people within the church. We end up forsaking the gospel and the word, the sufficiency of the Bible even. And we often give our own minds and our thoughts and our attitudes and our hearts to man-made practices, all with the goal of inner peace. And all these things have continued to gain traction <coughs> in the church. And the readiness, which makes this a little sad, the readiness with which we evangelicals have just so easily propped up even celebrity teachers and false pastors and shepherds to suit our own interests in our modern evangelical church has become jarring. How easily have we fallen prey to false teachings, to false leaders and false pastors, false men proclaiming uh, self-helpism or a prosperity gospel or something of that sort. But this systematic problem is hardly new. Again, such was the exact case going on even during John the Apostle's own lifetime, by the time he was writing this letter, most likely in the early 80s, 60s. And historically speaking, <clears throat> scholars agree that John was most likely directly confronting the errors of a certain group of people who were then known as the Gnostics. Uh, 
that's where we get the word uh, knowledge from, to know something, uh, gnosis rather, knowledge, to know something. But he was actually confronting the errors of these people who esteemed high knowledge because they were the primary heretics of that day. Uh, by name, both Serenthus and Ebion, along with their followers around this time of the writing of the Gospel of John, had begun to greatly influence the church with false views about who Jesus was, both his deity and even his humanity. For, in, for instance, Serenthus, in particular, deceived many people within the, within the early church into believing that God did not create the physical world. And he taught furthermore that Jesus was merely a man who had been anointed by God for only his earthly ministry, from the time of his baptism as an adult all the way to his crucifixion, from the very beginning of his earthly priestly ministry uh, to the end of it for three years. Uh, likewise, Ebion, another heretic, <laughs> did not believe in the eternality of Jesus beforehand. And he saw Jesus as merely being a prophet who was just a man, not the son of God who took on flesh in the fullness of time. Both of these heresies, though, of course, do not accord with what we know of in the Bible to be true. And thankfully, our God then is so gentle in the correction of us. We see this exemplified even in John 1 as God gave us gospels to correct our thinking, to correct our wrong belief systems. See, even after the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written, three gospels <laughs> for the church, the Lord inspired John to write yet another gospel, a fourth gospel, to address specifically the ideas that these false teachers were proclaiming in the church. You okay, Esther? I'll be all right. Okay. Um, do you want to get some water for me? I just get worse in the evening. It's okay. Yeah, yeah we'll get some water coming for you. Yeah. Thanks, Noel. Of course. Well, friends, thankfully, again, God is so patient toward us. And he gave us, again, this fourth gospel in John to actually, again, correct our false understanding of Jesus. See, in the positive, John wrote the gospel account, as we know in John 20, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so from the very start of the gospel of John, Jesus is set before us, even in these first few verses, as the very word eternal, who is indeed the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. This is Jesus. And later on in verses four through five, it says this, that in him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, the darkness can never overcome whatever the world around us might believe wrongly about Jesus. That's our main point for tonight. See, the names of people like Serenthus and Ebion have rightly fallen out of the memory and the knowledge of most people. I mean, who here before tonight had even heard of the Ebionites, you know, the followers of Ebion, or Serenthus? Probably none of us, maybe one or two of us at most, have heard of these names even. These men fell out of even history 
But they defied Jesus. And Jesus, in his goodness, shut down these heresies even 2,000 years ago. Fittingly so, then, the message of these two heretics was actually, which actually attached the name of Jesus, has been buried along with their own names so many generations ago. Well, friends, likewise, even in our own day, those who deconstruct the Christian faith will not stand. Those who try to attack our Lord Jesus Christ, who try to attack him, will not be held in high regard, even a century or two centuries or more beyond. They will fall eventually. And so the so-called gospel of social justice, for instance, will one day fail. The prosperity gospel, as a lot of us know about, will fail in due time. The pragmatism of the early 20th century within Protestantism, in which the church had tried to set up their own version of the kingdom of God, the things that we've been talking about in our major group the last several or a few months now, all of those failed attempts to recreate religion have all failed, and rightly so. Well, in the same way, today's God of self that post-liberalism and post-modernism tries to put forward, this false God which sacrifices intellect and reason and reliance upon the scriptures for faith and for practice, it already is failing before our very eyes. 10, 15, 20 years from now, we're going to see, yeah, that post-liberalism stuff, that died a good and fitting death. That was heresy, and thankfully it's passed. That's the nature of what is false, what is untrue. These things will one day fail, but the truth will prevail. God's word will continue to prevail all the way throughout the ages. And so friends, the unchanging message of the eternal Son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us will never fail. It is worth actually putting our trust in even as we seek to share the gospel with men and women in our own neighborhoods. 1 John 2, verse 8 tells us this, that the darkness, in fact, is passing away. It's already happening, in other words. And the true light is already shining. In fact, the darkness, friends, that we experience, even here in this life, the darkness in our own culture around us, will never be able to overcome the light of life himself, Jesus Christ. And so next week, we'll go ahead and pick up with the next two questions. We'll wrap up our sermon here for tonight at this point. We'll continue on in verses 6 through 13 next week. And we'll ask these questions, namely, not just who is Jesus, but then why should we believe in him? And and the final question for us will be, well, then how can we take comfort in him? But as we close, I want to leave us in this time of the word uh, with a wonderful old Dutch Christmas carol from well over 100 years ago. It's so fitting, and this ancient Christmas carol, say ancient, (laughs) 150 years old or so, (laughs) speaks these ancient truths to us in a very powerful and amazing way. So hear hear these words from this Christmas carol, which I actually hope to have us sing even next week. It says this, Come and stand amazed, you people. See how God is reconciled. See his plans of love accomplished. See his gift, this newborn child. See the mighty, weak, and tender. See the word who now is mute. See the sovereign without splendor. See the fullness destitute. 
See how humankind received him. See him wrapped in swaddling bands, who, as Lord of all creation, rules the wind by his commands. See him lying in the manger without sign of reasoning. Word of God to flesh surrendered, he is wisdom's crown, our king. O Lord Jesus, God incarnate, who assumed this humble form, counsel me and let my wishes to your perfect will conform. I love this line. It's my prayer for all of us here. Light of life, dispel my darkness. Let your frailty strengthen me. Let your meekness give me boldness. Let your burden set me free. O Emmanuel, my Savior, let your death be life for me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you again for giving us your holy word, for being the word of God to flesh surrender, wisdom's crown, our King. O Emmanuel, our Savior, let your death be life for us. Jesus, we thank you for this new season of Christmas that we have the joy of entering into. We pray, O Lord, that as we begin even the first week of Advent together, as we recognize your coming to earth to rescue us from our sins, from our misery, to a state of mercy and grace and eternal undying love. We recognize, O Lord, that uh, truly uh, it is your good and gracious will to have accomplished this for us, to give, to give us your freedom to give us true life in your name for all who would believe. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would help our unbelief where there are doubts, that you would answer them, where there are questions, that you would respond so lovingly to them as you have through your word. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as you help our unbelief, that you would cause us to believe all the more. And so we pray all this in Christ's holy and majestic name.